This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 76.2. You know what that means. But if you don't, we'll tell you in just a second. Uh, I am your host this morning. My name is Michael Farmer. I am an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Um, joining me today is only one of my normal colleagues, Nathan Gilmore, who is a assistant professor of English at uh, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm getting all our colleges mixed up. H- how are you this morning, Nathan? Oh, I am busy. Uh, tonight, as we record, it'll be in the past when you listen to it, listeners. Uh, is the release party for Emmanuel's Literary Magazine. We are still printing, which is farther behind than we have ever been in my tenure as a faculty sponsor for this puppy dog. Uh, so I've been sweating for the last couple weeks. Did you write anything for it, Nathan? <laughs> no, I did not. I, I didn't realize that they were soliciting faculty submissions this year. So there are about three faculty members who did uh, publish poems in this year's issue but i was not one of them oh well (laughs) put one of your late 80s raps in there there you go um not joining us today is david grubbs who uh is not as of the thursday morning we're recording this a father but we had assumed he would be right (laughs) it ended up being a good thing that his wife did not have that baby last week because they had tornadoes in his county and I don't think uh, anybody wants to be giving birth during a tornado. No, no. That's... Wedge tornadoes, too, the serious ones. Yeah, uh-huh. But uh, they are okay. As far as I know, it didn't even hit McPherson proper. It, just, it was just in the county. So. Um, right, that's right. Good. So, so he's not dead. By the time you're listening, listeners, there might be a baby grubs, but as of the day of recording, there is not. So uh, if that baby doesn't come soon, we may have uh, .1 episodes throughout the rest of the semester. Yeah, yeah, which uh, brings up the question, Michael, uh, you know, if we get to point nine, what do we do after that? I guess at that point, we just kick Grubbs off the show. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to have to decide what's more important, his family or this show. That's right. (laughs) Selfish. Um, Well, uh, as you know, when one of us is not here, we try to pick topics that that person would not be interested in anyway, and and that is why this week we are talking about... um, Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, which Nathan and I both love, and which I've never heard Grubbs talk about. I don't know if he's read it or not. Yeah, I don't know if he has or not. I I, I, I would guess that he hasn't because he doesn't talk about it. That's right. how good it is. <laughs> well, and then, plus, we've brought it up before on the show, and he didn't say anything. So, Right, um, right. I, I just assume he hasn't read it. He should. By the way, before we get too far in, Michael, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna preempt you and ask the first question, even though you're the host. Uh huh. Okay. I, I, I'm sitting here with the uh, vintage paperback or the vintage classics edition of Brothers Karamazov in my hands, and in the little mini essay explaining patronymics and Russian naming, there's a note at the end that says Notabene, the Z in Karamazov is pronounced like the Z in Zoo, not like the Z in Mozart. Oh, so it's Karamazov. And, and I am the only person that I know who pronounces it that way. Everyone else uh, pronounces it, you know, in that Mozart my, sort of way. My Russian-born, uh, Russian-lit professor in graduate school said Motsov. Ah, okay. So in other words, our our translator 
Uh, to... Okay. Have... Who's your translator? Uh, Larissa Volokonsky. She's the good one, right? She's the... Is she the one who... It's a relatively recent translation. Yeah, it is a relatively recent translation. Uh, publication date, 1990. Oh, then it's not the one I'm thinking of. Oh, okay, okay. I use Constance Garnett. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to make a difference. Constance well, at any rate, listeners, the, the only reason I bring this up is because I'm going to keep saying Karamazov because that's the way I've been saying it for 10 years. <laughs> and I'm probably going to continue to say Karamazov because that's the way I've said it for 10 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you as the listener are free to pick whatever you, whatever translate, whatever uh, pronunciation you want. And write in and let us know which one of us is wrong. Especially if you're Russian. There you go. <laughs> I don't think we have any listener feedback, do we, to discuss before we dive in? Uh, none this week, no. Uh, trying to think. You know, as far as the blog goes, I missed the Bible post this week. Entirely my fault, listeners. Uh, with montage going on, I've just been cutting out a lot of side things like sleeping and writing Bible posts. <laughs> and seeing your family. Yeah, yeah. So... But not they, as they will, will note the podcast. They will hopefully get uh, more regular uh, as montage comes and goes. Well, let's uh, let's get started on the uh, the actual book then. Uh, Grubbs is not here to historicize for us, so it is now your job to give us the background to the Karamazov, <laughs> uh, to Brothers Karamazov. What was going on in Dostoevsky's life when he published and wrote it? How does it fit into his canon? That sort of question. All right, so as far as the canon question, this is the last novel that uh, Dostoevsky published. Uh, so he publishes it in serial form towards the end of his life when his health is failing, uh, when he's suffering from epilepsy and emphysema, among other things that start with E. Uh, he is, I mean, at the end of a tumultuous life, I mean, to put it very, very briefly, uh, he has recently lost a son named Alyosha, which will come to become important as we discuss this. Uh, he is, you know, the veteran of failed marriages, marital affairs, exile, all sorts of awful things. Uh, so, I mean, this novel, um, although I tend to resist biographical readings of things, uh, certainly at the very least we can say the richness of this novel uh, corresponds even if it is not caused by the rich suffering of Dostoevsky's own life. Uh, Michael, I mean, you, you've done more work with Dostoevsky than I have. I mean, are there any other salient biographical details that you would add? Yeah, yeah just that, well, number one, this was supposed to be the first book of a trilogy, which unfortunately never got written because he died. Mm -hmm. uh, no, number two, it is, light, light is not the word, um, obviously, but it is... Yeah. There is substantially more light or lightness in the novel than there is in his other great works that I've read. I've never read The Idiot, but there's certainly more light in this than there is in Crime and Punishment or certainly in Notes from Underground. And so um, the temptation is to read those three books in particular as a progression where Notes from Underground sets out the problem of the underground man. The underground man reappears as Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, who, spoiler alert, at the end of the novel finds kind of the beginnings of redemption. And mm -hmm. then in Brothers Karamazov, the underground man is a relatively 
minor character who assumes major importance, but who does not dominate the proceedings of the novel. And so, um, Brothers Karamazov, of the five or six Dostoevsky novels I've read, is the only one with anything approaching a happy ending. So, it is mm-hmm. it is both in line with his previous work and quite different from it. Uh, an improvement over it. I guess Crime and Punishment has a happy ending. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, would, I would consider Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov to have analogous endings at the very least. I mean, you've got the repentant criminal who, although I guess, you know, Dimitri really isn't the criminal unless, well, that's that's another question we'll talk about later. <laughs> but the, the, the happiness at the end of Crime and Punishment is at the very end, right? It's it's Yeah, yeah. It's the last ten pages. Uh-huh. Whereas whereas Brothers Karamazov really sets it up from the beginning. Um and the 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 sunbeam, shall we say, goes throughout the novel, although it, it is occasionally obscured. Mm-hmm. So it, it is like I said, both different and similar to to the books that okay, as, I can as see my that. freshman I can writers see like to say there yeah are there many you similarities go. between it and the other books but also many differences <laughs> <laughs> yes yes this is why folks i never assign modes of discourse papers well uh the book is obviously way too big for us to uh, discuss it in all its multiplicity so i'm just going to focus on a few issues that i find interesting nathan you'll have your chance to tell me what i'm leaving out um Let's start with the brothers themselves. These three characters, or four characters, depending on how you're counting, are some of the richest and most durable in literary history. Let's spend a few minutes talking about Alyosha, Ivan, and Dmitry Karamazov, and Smerdyakov, if you feel like it. Um, let's start with Alyosha, who is, in many ways, the protagonist of the book. Yeah, and, and the narrator refers to him as the hero of the book in, in several places, so he's a logical place to start. He's a young novice studying to become an Orthodox monk. Uh, he is living with the Elder Zosima, or the Staritz Zosima. I always say Elder because my uh, southern Indiana tongue can't say Staritz without spitting on the front row of my students. Um, <laughs> it's true. Uh, and Alyosha is the character who certainly undergoes struggles, certainly undergoes crises of faith, but always ends up being sort of the solid rock on which other characters lean. Uh, and for that, I mean, he is one of the more interesting characters. Uh, I pitch him to my students at Emmanuel College as one of the genuinely compelling Christian characters in the modern novel. One of the very, uh, very few genuinely compelling Christian characters yeah, in the modern yeah. novel. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, And, you know, what's fascinating is that, you know, when he does lose his faith uh what brings him back to himself really is right when he is about to uh piss it all away uh the the woman with whom he is about to piss it all away it turns out she's also in a moment of despair and he's brought back to himself because he has to be the solid rock on which she leans (laughs) so i mean he's one of those people who you know um not damned if you do and not damned if you don't that seems to be his lot in life (laughs) what what Um, makes him what makes him such a compelling christian character where where so many other authors have failed to create one nathan uh a few things i mean first of all he's got a genuine history uh you know he actually goes through 
moral crises. You know, like I said, I mean, there is that crisis of faith moment where he's about to throw it all away, but a character ends up leaning on him. Uh, but he is also targeted and tested by just about everyone in the novel. Everyone wants to uh, see if they can scratch off the Christian veneer. Uh, and he genuinely struggles with every attempt to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his Christianity, to speak theologically for a second, is one that is genuinely shaped by forgiveness rather than being shaped by a sort of innocent purity. Uh, so in other words, you know, I mean, it's not that he's just too stupid to realize what evil might look like, like a Forrest Gump type character. Uh, but instead, I mean, he is one who has seen into the abyss, but who has been pulled out of it and has that awareness that he has been pulled out of it. And not only that, the abyss to some extent exists within him. We have this. Oh, absolutely. This, yeah, that's what I was get, trying to get at, but go ahead and run with it. We have this obsession throughout the novel with the Karamazov gene, his, uh, his father, yes. <laughs> his father, Fyodor. And, and if, if you're a close listener, you will remember that Fyodor Dostoevsky's lost child was named Alyosha so mm-hmm. there's some there's some suggestion that this is who he would have been if he'd grown up um but anyway his his father Fyodor is just a debauched debased ma- man and and so is his brother Dmitri whom we'll get to in just a moment and so right. there's this there's this idea that goes through, that goes to the novel that somehow it is in their genes to act like this and this is true even of Alyosha who is this sainted character and so he's he he's a better saint because he's not really a saint because he is a fallen right. human being who who is aware of his fallenness. Right. Or to paraphrase uh, Stan Harawas, you know, or I guess to draw an analogy to Stan Harawas, he's the theologian who says that I'm a pacifist because I'm so damn violent. <laughs> You're really uh, letting loose with the swear words this morning, Mason. We're going to get that red explicit tag on the. Uh... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> You're not careful. Hey, I believe that word is in the King James Bible. I think I'm I'm safe still. <laughs> well, um, let's move on to Yvonne. Uh, yeah, Yvonne is the person that you know Peter Rollins seems to be trying to model himself after with <laughs> much less success than Fyodor Dostoevsky's character. Uh, Ivan Karamazov is a self-styled European atheist. Uh, who, from that self-styled outsider position, is trying to articulate what is really at the core of Russian Christianity. Uh, So one of the earliest things you find out about him in the novel is that uh, he has written a theological article arguing that uh, the Russian church should not be the ward of the state, but instead that the church ought to be ruling the state the way that the medieval papacy did. Uh, so, I mean, he is, he's a character who revels in his own contradictions. He thinks himself very clever. Uh, he is more clever than, uh, Muisov or Musov. I always forget what order those vowels come in. Uh, the other self-styled European atheist in the novel. Uh, but one of the things about him is that he's got all of these clever ideas. Uh, but when it comes to actually living life, uh, he falls into, the Karamazov gene that Michael just talked about, uh, you know, he, you know, has this unrequited love for a woman who will not have him. Uh, he eventually falls into madness. 
Uh, in fact, he ends up wrecking his brother's defense at his trial because he starts talking to the devil who is hiding under the table in the courtroom. Uh, so, I mean, he's a, a walking contradiction, uh, which makes him a terribly fun character, and he's also got some of the most interesting speeches and conversations in the novel, so uh, he's a lot of fun that way. Michael, what would you add to that? It's through Yvonne that we get one of the major themes of the novel, which is the infectiousness of ideas, or as uh, our old friend Richard Weaver would put it, the idea that ideas have consequences. Yes, yes. So um, Yvonne goes around preaching this atheism, this, this, this scenario in which nobody has ultimate responsibility for anything they do. Uh, without God, all things are permissible. And when another character takes that to heart and uh, sets in, in, into uh, motion the awful actions of the novel, Yvonne goes crazy with guilt because he feels that he has caused it. Yes, yes. Um, so I Yvonne is a pivotal character, not, not perhaps not quite as much as Alyosha, but I'd say he is the second most important and interesting character in the novel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now on to somebody I know neither one of us like very much uh, as a character, <laughs> Dmitri Karamazov, the oldest Right, brother. sometimes I wonder whether he is a literary character or whether he's a walking urge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's a character I, I, I tell my students when I teach this, I mean, by the end of the novel, I'm actually yelling at him, would you please just shut up for two pages? <laughs> Uh, he has these grand speeches. Oh my goodness! He, and, he seems and, to think he's Alexander Pushkin. Yes, yes, and and at his own murder trial, I'll go ahead and give away that he's accused of murder. Uh, he insists whenever he gets a chance, and sometimes he makes the chance to give these grand speeches about how he must be doomed, and you know, obviously they're going to find him guilty because he had every reason to kill his father, and he probably should have killed his father, and. Really, I kind of wish I had killed my father because he deserved to die. It's like, Dimitri, shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> um, but he is also, uh, you know, the great doomed romantic figure, even more so than Yvonne. Uh, he is pursuing Grushenka, uh, who is a woman who, you know, plays him against his father uh, and is holding romantic liaisons with both of them uh while being a kept woman by a third man uh so we might get to that character later too but uh you know he is you know just entirely convinced that his life is the plot of a grand melodrama and boy oh boy does he live it out and, and because of that he can be a difficult character for us in the 21st century to approach yeah, um, because he is a type that really does not exist in American literature, and especially not in contemporary American literature. Right, he, right, he and and really, I mean, the, the only place you can see anything remotely approaching a Dmitri Karamazov is in a in, is in a farcical cast. I mean, right. if you think of something like the the characters in Glee, I mean, that's the sort of it, if you could imagine the player the characters in Glee played straight and I don't mean sexually, uh, then <laughs> you get something like Dmitry Karamazov. A man convinced of his own heroism, who is, you know, he's kind of a pig. Maybe yeah, he is, he is. He's, he's really like, kind of like, just like his father. Except right, his, like his... the Pope is kind of German. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that great German name, Benedict. 
well, you know, Joseph Ratzinger, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, let's throw in, um, let's throw in the fourth brother who is, you know, mostly suspected to be a brother, but I don't know anyone who actually denies it. That is uh, right. Smerdjakov. Right. By, by but... the way, you know, that's my cat's name. Yes, yes, yes. And, and you should know that in class I refer to him as Stank Jack. Yep, and that, that is what his name would mean, the stinking one. <laughs> yeah, Stinky Jacob. <laughs> um, and yeah, Smerdyakov is, uh, well, he's a grown man for most of the novel. Uh, he is born when uh, Dmitry Karamazov, no, not Dmitry, Fyodor Karamazov, pardon me, uh, has a dalliance with a local insane homeless woman. And by dalliance, you mean he rapes her in an alleyway yeah yeah uh (laughs) (laughs) let's not let's not sugarcoat it yeah i guess that's true i guess that's true uh she basically by some means or other managed to to get inside of their gated estate uh to give birth to this child so he is it ends up that he is raised by the karamazov family servants uh marfa and grigory Gregory, thank you, thank you. Man, there's so many characters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they all have uh, two names and a nickname. Yes, yes. Uh, and so, you know, he is suspected through the town, uh, which, by the way, the town doesn't get named until well into the novel, and it's called Cowtown or something like that, an entirely fictional name. <laughs> um, but everyone in town knows that this is Fyodor's fourth offspring. Uh, but because he is not... He is not uh, born to a wife of Fyodor Karamazov. Uh, He never has access to any of the benefits of being a Karamazov, including, importantly, the inheritance. Uh, So that sort of envy, that sort of resentment is what drives him. And as Michael said, I mean, when uh, Ivan Karamazov, largely showing off, starts to wax eloquent about the ethical implications of atheism uh Smerdyakov is a character whose resentment seizes on that and manages to put that on Yvonne and says all right if you want to be an atheist I'm going to become your disciple and you know I'm going to go ahead and live out all of the awful implications of what you're preaching and again you know the I I I have trouble thinking of Smerdyakov as a genuine convicted disciple of this atheism so much as an opportunist who says this is an opportunity to expand my revenge, not only to Dmitri, who I'm going to frame for this, but also to Ivan, whom I'm going to drive insane with guilt, like Michael said. He also plays the guitar with a high falsetto. Yes, he does. Like the guy from Bon Iver. <laughs> I had forgotten that part, actually. Yeah, yeah I was thinking that when I hear Bon Iver. I think, oh, it's Smerdjakov. <laughs> nice. Uh, anything else about the brothers before we move on? Uh, I mean, I think that's a good character sketch. I mean, I'm going to have some more to say about him, obviously, as we talk more about other things in the novel. But go ahead and keep rolling with the questions. Um. 
Okay, well, the novel is defined by two main sections that come right in the middle of it. Uh, the first is an argument between Yvonne and Alyosha that culminates in Yvonne's famous parable of the Grand Inquisitor, which is what you've read of this novel if you haven't read anything else of it. Yeah. And the second is the life story and sayings of Alyosha's sainted mentor, Father Zosima. Mm -hmm. um, they come very close together right in the middle of the book. What is Dostoevsky doing with them? All right, well, first of all, the... Uh... The Grand Inquisitor, like you said, is part of a long scene in a tavern between Alyosha and Yvonne. The cherry uh, jam, I believe. Drink tea. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that you remember that. I, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, these are two brothers who have been apart for years and years. And Yvonne, I mean, I had forgotten this until I taught it here recently. Uh, there is no pretext for starting to talk about atheism i mean he just says hey we haven't seen each other for a while i know what's on your mind let's talk about whether god exists that, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah yeah um but you find uh in, in dostoevsky novels people don't really do small talk <laughs> no they really don't they really don't <laughs> nobody ever says hey how you doing no <laughs> no that is absolutely true uh but uh, so in this conversation, uh, the first section of it is in the chapter called Rebellion, uh, in which Yvonne says, uh, and again, I mean, you can definitely see where Peter Rollins is styling himself after this. And if, if Peter Rollins hasn't read Dostoevsky, I would be very, very surprised, uh, even though he never cites him as a source that I'm aware of. Uh, but in this conversation, he says that, you know, the whole skeptical... Uh, he wouldn't call it this because these writers hadn't come around yet, but the Bertrand Russell, Richard Dawkins style of atheism that says uh, there's just not enough evidence for a supreme being, but we're still going to be moral. He says, I don't have any time for that. He says that if you look at the actual logic of it, of course there's a God. Uh, you couldn't make any sort of uh, metaphysical claims about the world at all. You couldn't make any ethical claims. You couldn't really speak much about the world unless there is a God. Uh, so he says, that I'll concede, that's fine. He says, but when I look around at the world that this God has actually given us, I want to hand back the ticket. Uh, you can keep it. I don't want this world. So that's the sort of atheism that Yvonne is all about. Now, that plays into the Grand Inquisitor in that this Inquisitor, who is a, a fictional... Well, I mean, it's a poem that Yvonne plans to write someday, which is one of the parts I love most about that part, is he says, I've got this poem, I'm going to write it someday, here's basically what it's going to be about, and 30 pages later... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 30 beautifully written, terribly controlled uh, pages later. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, he wraps up this idea for a poem that he's going to write someday... <laughs> Uh, but in the poem, there is a 16th century Spanish cardinal uh, who is controlling the people by means of uh, religious authority. Uh, and he is an inquisitor. He works for the Inquisition. Uh, so that becomes another device of control. And in 16th century Seville, Spain, uh, Jesus comes back. The second coming occurs. And the people start to flock to Jesus. And the inquisitor realizes that uh, this cannot do because he is pulling people away from the Inquisition. So he imprisons Jesus and comes to him at night, has a conversation with him, 
And to give the brief version, because I realize I'm going too long already, uh, he says that Jesus, you know, all you offer people is goodness and freedom. He says, and frankly, people don't want goodness and freedom. Uh, what they want is spectacle, authority, and what's the third one, Michael? I always forget. Uh, bread, right? Oh, that's right, bread. That was so easy, and I missed it. Okay, uh, I'm, all of a sudden I'm in comprehensive exams again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember the two tough ones, uh, but he says that, you know, the temptations that you claim to have resisted in the wilderness uh, are really the things that make for human community. He says, you know, you feed the people, you show them grand displays of power, and you lord it over them with the threat of punishment. Since you're unwilling to do those things, Jesus, ultimately you're just not as good a savior as I am. Uh, and I mean, it's a fascinating little parable. Uh, at the end of this long speech by the Inquisitor, Jesus, of course, kisses the Inquisitor, uh, you know, both echoing the kiss to Judas, the kiss from Judas, pardon me. Uh, and then also, you know, just the fact that Jesus's main appeal is not in rational argument. It's not in political stratagem, uh, but it is in the welcome and the embrace of the sinner. Uh, so again, I mean, just, you know, a fascinating section within a fascinating novel. Uh, and of course, you know, this is Yvonne's, you know, answer to Alyosha's objection that, well, you know, uh, there might be unjustified suffering in the world, but the most unjust sufferer is the one who saves us, Jesus Christ. Uh, so at the end of this, Yvonne says, well, there you go. You know, the actual Christianity that has grown out of this man, Jesus, is exactly what Jesus tried to refuse in the wilderness, but his followers couldn't manage to. So what are you going to do about it? And Alyosha, of course, reaches across the table and kisses him. That's plagiarism. Which <laughs> yeah, which Yvonne says, you plagiarist. <laughs> that was my idea. <laughs> so that that's sort of the broad strokes, Michael. I mean, you know, uh, run with it a little bit. What else should our listeners see when they read that scene? Uh, a little bit of historical background. Uh, the rebellion chapter that where, where Yvonne says, I won't accept a heaven built on the unexpurged suffering of children. Mm -hmm. is a, a direct response to utilitarian ideas, which were very popular in Europe at that time, of course. Yes, And yes. In, in particular to uh, a book, I believe the book was called The Crystal Palace. Okay. Um, which which said that the, in the future, society would be made right and, and it, it, all the present suffering would be expurgated. And so uh, Yvonne is not only rejecting God, he is also rejecting the kind of easy atheistic utilitarianism of john stewart mill and right right like that um now of course the the grand inquisitor parable has uh little to do with uh utilitarianism but uh the rebellion chapter which I've, i think i'm on the record of saying is the greatest thing ever written mm -hmm. outside of the bible um <laughs> uh i th that is a direct response to utilitarianism I've I've always struggled with the Grand Inquisitor chapter. I know I know it's supposed to be really great. I think it pales in comparison to the chapter that comes before it, the Rebellion chapter. Yeah, I mean I, I prefer the Rebellion chapter myself, but I think just because it's a self-contained allegory, right? You don't uh, need to know anything about the book. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, so you can anthologize it without making students read this thousand-page Russian novel. <laughs> how, how dare you? <laughs> now, what about, uh, what about the life and sayings of Father Zosimo? Yeah, that that's another fascinating chapter, and I mean, I'm going to bring in his funeral as well, because okay. I think the two inform each other. Uh, the life and sayings of Zosima are not what you'd expect from a holy person. Uh, you'd expect a lot of moralizing, you'd expect a lot of be like me, you'd expect a lot of those sorts of things. Instead, what you get is a series of tales about how he became a fool for Christ, uh, and how he rendered himself unable to relate to people, uh, but precisely because of that strangeness, he ended up leading some of them into the mystery of the Christian religion. Uh, and it plays into his funeral because the normal expectation for a saint uh, in the Orthodox Church, but also in the Western Church to a great extent, uh, is that there will be posthumous miracles so the one that they're expecting from Father or Elder Zosima, pardon me, uh, is that when he dies, his body won't decay, uh, it won't stink. But instead, what happens is his his decay, his post mortem decay, happens at a super accelerated pace, so that within hours after he breathes his last, the room where they're holding his wake just reeks. Uh, and I mean, what's fascinating about this is that, of course. Uh, all of the respectable monks there at the monastery who have hated Zosima all along because of his loosey-goosey ways come in and say, oh, look, you know, God has vindicated our position. Obviously, this is not a holy man. God has cursed him even after he died. Um, but at the end of his wake, when they are re reading the story of the wedding at Cana of Galilee, uh, which, you know, that's the tradition at the monastery to read all four Gospels at the wake of a departed brother, but while they're reading that scene, uh, Alyosha drifts off to sleep and has a vision of the Elder Zosima in which he says, you know, uh, the way of foolishness is the way of Christ. Uh, and he is reaffirmed, Alyosha is, in the Elder's wishes that he not live the holy, isolated life of the monk, but that he go out, that he marry, that he live among the people, that he bring that foolishness of Christ to bear on the larger world. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it, it definitely stands in contrast to the Grand Inquisitor who is all about control and power. Uh, Elder Zosima, in his own sayings and in his funeral, displays that precisely when respectability completely departs from a soul is when Christ stands to sh shine through that soul. So, I mean, it's a fascinating sequence of scenes. And again, Michael, I'll, I'll turn to you. You've actually done graduate coursework in this. Uh, what else should our reader, what else should our listeners see when they read this sequence? Um, you should see the degree to which it is a response to the, the, the things Yvonne says. Yeah. Um, it, it is the, is the counterpoint to Yvonne's point. And, and one of the perhaps failings of the novel is that the, the, the rebellion chapter and the grand inquisitor are so compelling that it is easy to lose sight that we are supposed to see the father's Osama chapters as having, if not refuted, you know, at least provided a viable alternative to the way of life that Yvonne says. 
Um, right, right. And see, well, what's interesting is I see the childhood chapters as the refutation of Yvonne, but we'll, well get those they later. Do, they, they do too, right? Because uh, Yvonne talks about the innocent suffering of children, and it turns out children may not be so innocent after all. Oh, children are wretched. <laughs> well, I'm a Calvinist, Nathan. Uh, <laughs> a Calvinist without children who doesn't like children. <laughs> yeah, there you go, there you go. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Dostoevsky saw those awesome chapters, uh, both both the funeral scene and the uh, the little book that Alyosha writes, as an, a very clear expression of what Christianity is supposed to look like, as opposed to um, Yvonne's atheism and the kind of charges he makes against Christendom. It, right. It, it, they're, they're supposed to show you that such a thing as Christianity can exist in the world. And uh, here's here's what it's going to look like. And forget the forget the monastery. Forget Father Farapont and the uh, the other monk whose name I can't remember now. The un, the unpleasant, legalistic, self righteous monks. Yeah, Farapont is the one I remember best. If you if you want to know what Christianity is supposed to be, you look at Zosima. And what's Zosima's famous saying? Everyone is responsible for everyone. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and so it's it's very different from I return the ticket because all of a sudden you're implicated in all that innocent suffering as well, if everyone yes. is responsible for everyone. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you haven't read the Brothers Karamazov, when you get to the Zosima chapters, you will be tempted to breeze through them because they are not nearly as exciting as what's just come before. But uh, you do have to kind of slow down and. Make yourself engage with them because Dostoevsky saw them as enormously important for this novel. And if you right, if you right. breeze through the Zosima part, you will not understand the counterpoint he wants to give you to Yvonne's atheism. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's move on. Um, you have already invoked the specter of the children chapters. Um, I mm-hmm. think they are definitely the most heart-wrenching part of the novel. Um, those schoolboys appear and reappear throughout the novel. Childhood is a big theme of the book. What's Dostoevsky mm-hmm. doing with it? Yeah, a little anecdote before I start on that. Uh, the Oxford World's Classics translation of uh, Brothers Karamazov has uh, an oil, no, a watercolor, pardon me, painting of the children on its cover. And about 400 pages in, my students were asking, okay, why in the world are there kids on the cover? This, <laughs> this is all about, you know... Uh, Russian aristocrats in their early twenties, you know what? What's going on here? Right. Um, and I said, you just gotta wait because I mean they're really the focus of the novel when you get to the end of it. So, uh, yeah, I mean the children. Uh, oh gosh, and I just blanked on all of their names. So don't, I can't don't remember th- any other names either. Ilishka. Um, yeah, Ilyushka. Yeah, but the the one who is the main character really. Uh, Krasatkin. Is that right. his name? Shoot, let's look it up. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> These Russian uh, names are just such a pain in the butt. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, Krasotkin is his last name. Kolya is how I know him. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, the so Kolya and, and Ilyushka are the two that I wanted to focus on. Uh, Kolya is Ivan Karamazov Jr. Uh, he is a young man... Uh, who has come across some volumes of Voltaire and some other European philosophy. Uh, because he has access to these and the other schoolboys don't, he thinks himself terribly clever. Uh, and in fact, one of them has a sort of 
old mythological account of the founding of Troy, and he actually uses that to trip up his schoolmaster uh, because he actually knows the four names of the traditional founders of Troy, whereas his schoolmaster has a more modern uh, anthropological account of the founding of cities. But uh, he is desperately seeking the approval not of Ivan Karamazov, but of Alyosha Karamazov. Whom he just calls Karamazov. <laughs> yes, he does. He does. He's, how old is he supposed to be? He's 11 or 12? Yeah, about that. He sees himself as an adult. Yes, it's he funny. does. Yes, he does. Uh, so Kolya, uh, actually one of the essay questions I had my students write on their final is, uh, you know, to what extent is Kolya uh, insufferable and to... What extent, you know, is he uh, cute, <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know, got some inter interesting essays on that. Most of my students hated him, probably because they're too close to his age. Uh, but, you know, he does consider himself an adult. He considers himself more clever than most of the people around him. He, d he desperately seeks the approval of Alyosha. Now, the other child, Uyushka, his father is a staff captain in the military. Therefore, uh, he's not a wealthy man because he's not one of the aristocratic officers. Uh, and because of some family problems, he runs afoul of Dmitry Karamazov and is publicly humiliated by him. And therefore, he pulls on his beard, right? He pulls him by his beard down the street or something. Yes, exactly. exactly. Wisp of toe, wisp of toe. Yeah, and every translation renders that a little bit different. The uh, the vintage re renders that as whisk broom, and <laughs> my personal favorite is the uh, Oxford World's Classics translation, which tr translate that as loofah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not making this up. Garnet says so. Garnet says wisp of toe, which which right, I don't know what right, that means, so. but it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like Lufa per personally. Oh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so because of this public humiliation, uh, Ilyushka develops a, a strongly overdeveloped sense of honor. He's always picking fights with other kids. Uh, he is determined that no one is ever going to shame him publicly the way his father's been shamed. Uh, and so as a result of this, uh, he first of all, gets severely injured in a, a, a thrown rock fight. Uh, and then also, on a dare, because he won't back down and lose honor, uh, he, on the advice of Smerdyakov, I should add, uh, fills a hunk of discarded beef with a sewing needle uh, and feeds it to a dog because Smerdyakov has told him that the dog will wolf it down so fast that you know, he'll swallow the needle and puncture his internal organs and die. I believe Krasotkin actually does that. Did he really? I think so. And it was, yeah. it was, it was, uh, maybe, maybe. No, 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 no. It, no, because Ilyushka, when he's hallucinating on his deathbed, he's still guilty about killing the dog. And then Krasotkin comes in and says, yeah, you killed the dog. It's all your fault. You wretched. No, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I was getting to that scene. So the signature scene between the two, and again, this is the cruelty of children and the wonder of children, is that Kolya comes in while uh, while Ilyushka is, I mean, basically on his deathbed, we find out later, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, he is 
hallucinating and, you know, just guilt racked because he's killed this dog. And, you know, Kolya comes in and says, yeah, you killed him. You're responsible for it. It's all your fault. That dog would still be alive. He would still be loving children, uh, all this other thing. And then at the last minute, he whistles and in comes the dog alive and well. But it's not really the dog, right? It's, it's another dog. Is it? See, I, I got the sense from the novel that it was the same dog. No, I think he bought a, a Mastiff pup, right? That's that's a... Oh, and see, I uh, you know, both times that I've read the novel all the way through, I thought that it was the same dog. So, I mean, see, I guess I'm gullible, too. Well, no, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I, I, was, I, I always thought he, he tricked him. It was, you know, kind of a noble lie. Ah, okay. Well, that, I mean, that would be, that would make it interesting in a different way. See, I thought that he just lied to him just to yank his chain and (laughs) the dog was all right all along, but he was making him suffer for it. Either way, yeah, it's the the scene. Either way, he's a cruel little jerk. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, uh, the children, we actually hear about the children before we start seeing the children a a great deal. When Alyosha has a conversation with the staff captain and the staff captain says, Children are both angels and they are devils. He says that, you know, uh, on their own, they can be the most angelic beings, innocent, uh, always seeking the good, all these sorts of things. But when you get a pack of them, they are much, much crueler than men are. And uh, that, that central tension, that central contradiction, is what drives the entire childhood sequence. So, Michael, I... Uh, take it wherever else you would want to. Uh, that that's what I remember most about the childhood sequences. I don't want to give away too much, but the the end of the novel involves a final reconciliation between the children. Um, uh-huh. That that's that's very important. The the happy ending of the novel involves the children. Um, but yeah, it's it. This is a direct response to. Uh, I guess it's an indirect response to the rebellion chapter where Yvonne complains that about the uh, the suffering of children and here it turns out that children are not quite the innocent beings that Yvonne wants to make them and in fact uh, right, right. The, wor- the worst of them is bad in exactly the same way that Yvonne is bad exactly and you're right to call him Yvonne Jr. basically <laughs> <laughs> and yet um, Kolya like all the other characters in the novel are drawn is drawn to uh, Alyosha yes yes That scene with the the dog is just so horrible to me. Oh yeah, yeah. That's and I mean so, here so here, sad. you know, I've been reading it as the dog's been fine all along, but this kid who's already sick unto death, he's going to make him suffer for a while thinking that the dog's dead, but if the dog's actually dead, he still makes him suffer before he springs the noble lie on him. So, yeah, I I guess it doesn't really matter. I'm going to have to go back and look. I could be wrong about that. As I said, we cannot possibly hit everything in this greatest of all novels. Uh, I have brought up some things I think are interesting. Nathan, what am I leaving out? What do you want to talk about? One of the great things about this novel is that you've got competing ideologies that goes all the way down to the narrator. Right. Uh, And one of the great things is that you've got a phenomenon early in the novel, you've got a phenomenon late in the novel that are both highly contested. So early in the novel, you've got the pilgrimage of women to see the Elder Zosima, and, of course, the self-styled European atheists think it's hogwash. The monks think it's miraculous. Uh, the women think that, you know, this is Jesus come again. 
we know that it happens. What's fascinating is the narrator doesn't give us a straight narration of it in some sort of literary realistic fashion, but instead the narrator has this sort of gossipy townsman voice that says, well, you know, I've heard stories about women who, you know, have these psychosomatic reactions to it. Uh, so in reality, I mean, the narrator becomes simply another competing voice for what's really happening with it. And that comes around full circle at the end because uh, the murder trial of Dmitry Karamazov, and I, it's a 130-year-old novel, Michael. I'm, I'm not worried about spoilers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at the murder trial of Dmitry Karamazov, um, while that's going on, Yvonne has an encounter with the devil, and it is impossible to say what exactly is going on because we've got the narrator being gossipy, We've got Yvonne, who's relating things to the crowd, as told by the narrator. Yvonne himself is slipping into insanity. Uh, we've got Smerdyakov, who we know is a wretched liar, but we don't know if he lied in particular about this, or if Yvonne is imagining the devil telling him these things. Uh, so in other words, I mean, the ambiguity of the core events of the novel is one of the things that, you know, really makes this something that you can come back to over and over and over again and read and enjoy over and over again. And I'll, I'll one more anecdote about teaching it because it's a wonderful novel to teach. Uh, you know, when we finally got to, you know, Smerdyakov laying out uh, his plot, I'll put it that way because I've probably dropped too many spoilers already, uh, he lays out his plot to Yvonne but by the time Yvonne tells anybody anybody about it, he's already descending into madness. And so nobody will uh, believe him. Yeah, well, and here's the thing. My student, one of my students, you know, who was getting most frustrated with all the ambiguity in the novel said, Aha, see, Gilmore, now we've got it. Now we've got how things really happened. Smerdyakov just told us. I said, no, he didn't. I said, Yvonne told us, after Yvonne had already started going nuts, that Smerdyakov who's not in the story anymore, said these things to him. We've got to take crazy Yvonne's word for it that Smerdyakov, who always lies, told these things to him. <laughs> I said, so you're you're still buried under seven layers of ambiguity. <laughs> and, and Dostoevsky's playing with faith here, right? He says early on in the novel that if to a non-believer, he's going to see a miracle and it's not going to make him believe, he's just going to deny the miracle. Yes, yes. And so throughout the novel, we have people denying not not just miracles, but all sorts of items of faith. Right, right. And items of investigation. I mean, again, you know, to return to Dimitri, one of the things that makes the murder investigation dang near impossible <laughs> is that, you know, Dimitri's always spouting off about, oh, yes, it's true. I did have that motive and I did have that opportunity. And. <laughs> So again, you know, I mean, just the, this thick, thick ambiguity that pervades the novel. Uh, that's why I'm not all that worried about spoiler alerts, because any plot detail that I think I know, like whether the dog died or not, I might be wrong about because of this thick ambiguity. Right. <laughs> so what have you got, Michael? Oh, I, I've already brought up the scenes I was interested in. Oh, okay, okay, uh, okay. But enough, no, I, I, think, I think you're right. I, I somehow completely left out this ambiguity is a good word for it i've always it's a it's a novel about faith and it's a novel that requires faith to read 
Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's a novel that treats its readers with enough respect to allow you to come to your own conclusions. So what other book do you know that could be loved equally by Freud and Rowan Williams? <laughs> and Nietzsche, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, it's just, it's an enormously rich novel. I must have read it four or five times now, and every time I read it, you know, the new vistas open up to me. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's just excellent. There's there's right. so much going on, and every time you read it, you pick a, you basically pick a different plot to follow, because, I mean, obviously there's 45 plots that intersect. Well, yeah, ways. yeah. It's like a Robert Altman film. In a, in a thousand-page novel, you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> but you compare it to something like... um. War and Peace, which also has a thousand plots, and I, I think um, Brothers Karamazov is a far more effective novel. Mm-hmm. But I don't like Tolstoy very much. Right. Well, I mean, that's the other thing I, I tell my students. I said, you know, this is not going to be a TV detective show where they tell you how it really happened at the end. Yeah. At the end, you're still not going to know what really happened. Yeah, you, <laughs> I, you're never given a definitive answer on who kills whom. and No, no. All that stuff. Oh, and by the way, I, and I don't know why I didn't give this shout-out at the beginning of the episode, but Chris Huntington, if you're listening, uh, I hope you've been enjoying this, because Chris Huntington, of course, is uh, my dad's friend uh, who taught in the same prison there in Indiana, now lives in China, and who absolutely loves the Brothers Karamazov. So, anyway, sorry, I, I just had to give that little acknowledgement. Oh, very nice of you. Proceed with the episode, man. <laughs> What, uh, what secondary sources do you use, if any, um, for for reading or teaching this book? What, what, what should our, yeah, our listeners this are having the trouble? Question. Honestly, the first time that I had engaged it, I engaged it because I had been taking a church history class in seminary, uh, and I had actually been reading some Vladimir Lossky, uh and some Timothy Ware, or Callistus Ware is usually his pen name. Those are uh, Orthodox theologians? Yes, yes. So I mean, one of the one of the sources that will make this novel richer, although I don't think it's necessary to enjoy the novel, uh, is a basic familiarity with Orthodox Christianity as opposed to Roman Catholic or Protestant Christianity. Right, because they do uh, some uh, things that seem very strange to us. Yes, yes. Although just... again, and and now nah, this won't be my last teaching anecdote because this book becomes re- richer when you teach it as well. Uh, but I told my students, I said, you know, what you're experiencing here, this alienation and disorientation with all this weird Orthodox stuff, what you're seeing is what Emmanuel College looked like in my first year teaching here. I said, because suddenly I stepped into Pentecostal world and it wasn't where I had been before. <laughs> I said, that. I said, so just remember that, you know, every system, every religious world is very, very strange to visitors. But anyway, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, working familiarity with uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity is going to be very, very useful. Uh, Some of the books that Michael's mentioned, uh, the folks to whom Dostoevsky is responding, John Stuart Mill, uh, folks like that would also be some helpful background reading. I really haven't read much literary criticism on Dostoevsky, so Michael, do you have any particular recommendations in that field i think a great intro to the novel is robin robin fewer miller's uh, book just it's just called the brothers karamazov it's about 250 pages it will lay out all the major themes of the novel talk about how they intersect it'll it'll open it up to you in a new way uh Uh without without you know kind of closing it at the same time right uh, because there's still much more to be said after that 
Mm-hmm. So that's the one I, I recommend to people who are uh, going to the novel for the first time. You don't necessarily need it. You could definitely read this book without help. Um, right, it right. It feel alienating to you, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is not. It's not Thomas Pinchon where you're going to be lost every other page if you don't. Yeah, yeah, and I was going to say James Joyce, but same sort of vibe. You're yeah, not going to be drowning in the prose. Or the references, you know. I mean, the problem with Pinchon right. is not so much that his prose is difficult. It's that if you don't understand classical music, ancient ancient Egyptian warfare, 1960s snuff films, and uh, <laughs> Superman comics, you'll never be able to follow it. So you really right, don't need a right. guide. You don't need a guide to Dostoevsky. But Miller will open things up a little bit more. You'll you'll understand more of what he's trying to do, I think, if, yeah. you, if you read through something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where do you, uh, this is a related question, where do you see echoes of this novel elsewhere in literature? Well, I've already made my, and, and again, I mean, Michael, you're right, I'm getting mean-spirited as the semester draws to a close. I took pot shots at Christ the Center last week, I'm taking pot shots at homebrewed Christianity this week, but uh, a lot of self-styled religious atheists and religious rebels, I think, take their cues from Ivan Karamazov. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's, you know, this whole stance of I'm going to be, uh, so thoroughly Christian that I look like an atheist, uh, is definitely a posture that Ivan Karamazov strikes. Uh, the irony of course, you know, as with so many things is that, uh, in striking that pose, people neglect or efface the fact that Ivan can't sustain that identity in the novel. Right, it ends they, up blowing up in his face. They stop reading after 400 pages. Well, that's also possible. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess, you know, do we brand them as lazy or dishonest? I, <laughs> there's, there's just no good way to put it, right? They're going to um, get visited by a certain gentleman. Isn't that the name of the devil chapter? Yes, a yes, certain yes. Gentleman. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, I mean, you know, the the fact that, you know, we've got the devil there. Uh, one of the parallels that I drew, and I've never run this down, I've never researched it, so listeners, if you've got an inside line on this, let me know. But Dostoevsky's version of the devil reminds me of nothing more than Tyler Durden from Fight Club. Hmm. Because the whole line of argument that he presents to Yvonne is, you know, uh, I'm the devil come to, you know, torment you. And Yvonne says, yes, but you use all of my words. And the devil's response is, yes, but if I were the devil, isn't that just what I'd do? <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, you know, what if I spent all day thinking about pulling the wrong wire? (laughs) You know, uh, so I mean, it's this idea of, you know, the devil within and the devil without and the devil that is beside me and the devil that is um, beyond me and the devil that's, you know, uh, it's a very, very complex chapter in that way. Uh, And for that reason, I mean, it fit really nicely in that semester because before that we had read uh, Faust by Goethe. And after that, we read Last Temptation of Christ, which have two very different sorts of devil figures. Uh, so, I mean, Dostoevsky's Tyler Durden devil was a, a lovely twist on the devil character. What class was that, Nathan? It was Western Authors 2, in which my job was to teach all of European literature from 1600 to the 20th century in 15 weeks. If it makes you feel any better, I get to do all of Western literature from Homer to the 20th century in 15 weeks. Oh heavens! <laughs> yeah, I, I, I at least I at least get two semesters to do that. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I was going to bring up uh, Brett Easton Ellis' American Psycho. Not so much the movie, but the book. Um, the uh, Bateman, the main character, is very much a combination of Ivan Karamazov and Smerdyakov. And uh, the scene where a certain gentleman appears to uh, Ivan has its corollary in the book when Bateman goes to a U2 concert and seems seems to see the devil, Bono, speaking directly to him from stage. <laughs> Which so. I've seen footage of U2 concerts and... He actually does dress up as Mr. McFisto. So. This, this would have been before that, though. Oh, really? Okay, okay, okay. Um, although, you know, I, I saw I saw U2, and one thing he did, I don't know if, if he did this because of the novel, mm-hmm. but when they were doing Bullet the Blue Sky, he, um, he pulled out a uh, stage light and shone it into the audience, you know, like, like he was oh, the devil trying okay, okay, to make okay. you feel yeah, guilty yeah. about uh-huh. uh, U.S. foreign policy. Right, so right. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he got his cues from American Psycho or if that was just Bono being Bono. Right. And just as a side note, I will say that uh, sort of not late '90s Generation X Christianity has poisoned U2 for me. Me too. I I, I can't listen to U2 now without suspecting myself of hipster tendencies. It's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because they're they're really quite a good rock and roll band. <laughs> Which, I, which is why I keep going back to my meatloaf albums because no one ever accuses me of having good taste when I listen to those. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> reading this book, um, let us say, is a major undertaking. I uh, usually tell my students yeah. who want to read it not to bother doing it during the school year when they have other responsibilities, but they should wait until the summer when they can really devote themselves to it because it'll take six weeks to go through it oh it does it does um but given its staggering length and its relative difficulty why should our listeners try it all and what advice do you have for them as they try nathan uh why try it because i mean it is the greatest novel now i i would depart from michael in saying that the greatest thing written ever is dante's comedy uh but as far as novels go you don't get better than the brothers karamazov uh now as far as taking it on uh, one thing I would say is get an edition with a good character list in the front matter. Uh, that's one of the things I made sure of when I was finding an edition to teach for Western Authors 2. Uh, because characters will have their given name plus their diminutive name plus their Patron. uh, patronymic uh, plus their insulting diminutive name, which is slightly different from the affectionate diminutive name. Uh, and you know, I wonder it, how anybody talks to anybody in Russia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, having something to which you can refer is very handy. Okay. You might want uh, to make a family tree and things like that too, as you're reading. Yeah. Yeah. It couldn't hurt. Graph. It couldn't hurt. The other thing I would say is, uh, just keep plowing through. I mean, you know, it is one of those novels where the sections build on each other, certainly, but if you've had to be away from the novel for a bit and you pick up where you left off, you can still benefit even having fuzzy memories of what came before. And I'm saying that from my own first experience of reading it, where I started reading it about mid-semester, then had to write final papers, then came back to it over Christmas break. It was still a wonderful reading experience to finish off the novel. So, I don't think it's nearly as difficult as something like Moby Dick. 
No, 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 not by any means. I don't, my, you know, my advice with Moby Dick is to submit yourself to it. I don't think you have to do that with Butters Karamazov. I think you can start interpreting as you read, but, uh, yeah. Um, realize that he put everything in there for a reason, even the parts that seem meaningless. So yeah. you're going to be tempted to skip stuff. I, again, especially that Father's Osama section. But hang in there and and try to connect it back to what you've already read. Mm-hmm. And, and what I try to tell people is, I mean, if you read the novel rhetorically, and, you know, Aristotle's definition of rhetoric is the power to see, um, you know, I mean, what Dostoevsky will teach you to do is to see the most wretched and the most boring people in your life as vastly complex and interesting. Right. And it's because he spends so many pages on every minor character. Uh, I mean, he actually... If you read him and if you allow yourself to be carried by the novel, you will start to look at the people in your own life differently. Now, that won't, that won't mean that you'll idealize them because complexity and interestingness sometimes means that they're even more wretched than you saw them as wretched before, but at least they'll be interesting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's it for our discussion of the British Karamazov, at least for now. Maybe we'll come back to it five years down the road <laughs> after Grubbs has read it. There you go. What are we talking about next week when, again, it'll just be me and you? Well, we are now at a place where it looks like the Republican nomination is sewn up. I'm probably wrong, and by the time we release this episode, some new twist will happen, and I'll have to go back and redact this. But uh, we haven't done a political episode this semester, so I'm going to save Grubbs the pain and the toil of doing a politics episode with us. You've never heard anybody complain as much as David Grubbs does when we do our political episodes. (laughs) He hates them. He really does. Uh, Several years ago, David Brooks wrote an essay about red states versus blue states. It's become a common trope in our own political discourse in America. So next week, Michael, we're going to talk about red states and blue states. Sounds good. Oh, excuse me. And I've already bored you with the topic. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it just won't be fun without uh, Grubbs here to yell back and forth with me. I'll, I'll do my best, Michael. <laughs> to, to channel uh, David. <laughs> In the meantime, you can send us an email at thechristianhumanist.com. Or, good Lord. You can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Uh, I guess those are the two things you can do. Yes. Like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes. We'll uh, see you next week, and until then, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and the absent David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>